Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Mark chapter number 9, we are continuing our study. The Gospel of Mark, if it matters, today's our 37th message in the study, 37 as, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to get very far today, uh, we're going to be in verses 9 through 13. Mark chapter n- number 9, today this theme from this passage, a little more misunderstanding, yet a little more grace, a little more misunderstanding and a little more grace. Allow me, if you will, to read these verses out loud, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer one more time. This is God's Word. And as they came down from the mountain, He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first, or must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be said at naught? But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. It's impossible for me to give an introduction to this message without reminding you of what was experienced by the inner circle of the disciples in our passage two weeks ago. Obviously, last week we were not in Mark 9 with a guest speaker here, but we two weeks ago we were in this passage, the previous verses, and we saw Peter, James, and John had gone up to the mountain with Jesus. I told you that I believe personally that the mountain that they went up on was Mount Hermon, which uh, I just want to say that again for the sake of saying it. But there the disciples were on that mountain and they were with Jesus. He's with them. According to Luke's account, Matthew speaks of this. Mark obviously speaks of this and Luke does as well. According to Luke's account, Jesus was praying and the inner three, Peter, James, and John, they, while Jesus was praying, they were sleeping. Maybe it doesn't surprise us because we know that they are sleeping once again in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prays. Mark tells us very directly and very Mark in terms that in verse number two that Jesus was transfigured before them. That Jesus was transfigured before these three. To be transfigured means to be changed into another form. And Jesus, there on the mounts, was changed from His human form to a form of brightness and glory that this world had not seen since God had walked in the garden with Adam. And so Mark told us that not only was He transfigured, but He was transfigured to the point where His raiment became shining, exceeding white, 
as snow so that no fuller. There was no way to launder him, uh, his clothing in such a way where it could be more white than it was. There appears on the mount with Jesus, not just Peter, James, and John, but now all of a sudden there's Elijah and Moses. These are the legends of the Jewish faith. The man, Moses, who led Israel out of Egypt had given them the law from God. And and then there's Elijah, who was the great defender of the law. He had fought for the purity of God's law. He's the one who humiliated the prophets of Baal, so much so that they fell on their faces confessing that the Lord is God. And so there is Moses and Elijah, and they've joined together with Jesus on the mountain. They're talking, right? The text told us they're talking. In fact, specifically, they're talking, and not only their conversation, but now Peter and James and John are amazed. They're beyond amazed. Luke told us that they were talking about the crucifixion, that they're talking, the three are talking about what's going to happen. But Peter, being Peter, who can't help but talk, Uh, Maybe a little bit in this situation, a nervous reaction. You'd be nervous too if you were there. Don't be too judgmental this morning. Peter, because he didn't know what else to do, he he started talking. He says, Master, it's it's good that we're here. You might consider this to be Peter saying, this is pretty awesome that you let us see this, Master. And then Peter offers to make for these three tabernacles. Peter said, let's make you three tabernacles. I don't need one. John doesn't need one. James doesn't need one. But let's make you three tabernacles. Maybe, maybe because he was hoping that God had come to dwell with his people just like he had in the wilderness in the tabernacle. But Peter is is talking. He's afraid. And all of a sudden, a cloud, a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from heaven, a voice from heaven begins to speak. And the voice that speaks out of the cloud says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Hear him. Nobody else is there. Elijah is gone. Moses is gone. And the father tells Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son. This is my son who I'm showing my favor, hear him. You don't need to hear Moses and Elijah any longer. Their job is done. You don't need to worry about what Moses and Elijah have to offer at this point. They have fulfilled their role. You have one response. Hear my son. The cloud lifts. No one is left but Jesus which is exactly the point. Exactly the point is that the story of the Bible, the story of the Christian life, the story of God, if you will, is finding its ultimate finality, its ultimate point in Jesus. Everything was leading up to Him, and everything after the resurrection is leading to His return. And so the walk away from this, for you and me, is a reminder that your, your, your Bible the story of God as we see it in Scripture, the story of God as we see playing out in history is absolutely, fundamentally, 100% all about Jesus. 
That's the reminder. Somebody asked me this week, why is the transfiguration important? The transfiguration reminds Christians, it reminds me, it reminds you, that the Christian life is 100% all about Christ. Moses served his point. Elijah served his purpose. It's all about the Son of God. Your Bible is about Jesus. Every passage, every page is about the person and the work of Christ. And so for the Christian in here, remind yourself of that this week as you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, that your Bible is about Christ. It is calling you to either see your need for Christ, to glory in the finished work of Christ, or anticipate the return of Christ, but it is all about Christ. For the unbeliever, the one in here who may be seeking, the, the, asking questions, wondering, doubting, if God the Father says that we should hear Jesus, then you should too. And many do listen, and they like His instruction. They, they, they like what He offers. They add Him to lists of deities and prophets and teachers. But the transfiguration says that what we need and all we need is actually just Jesus. It's just Him. And only in Him is there salvation. Only in Him is there salvation. This moment is a fascinating moment. In fact, do we see it not only in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, but the Apostle Peter speaks of this as well. You see, the, the book of Mark is, is just a, a reminder to you, the book of Mark is believed to be the, 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 the explanation of the life of Jesus from the perspective of the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter. Mark was a, a secretary, if you will, for Peter. Peter, in his second epistle, spoke of this transfiguration moment. He spoke of it in a, in a very important way that might help us today. When speaking of the transfiguration, Peter said, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said these words, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want you to see this in 2 Peter 1. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now what's Peter talking about here? I think it's pretty obvious, right? He's said, we, we've not followed fables. This is not cunningly devised fables to lead people along. What we saw on the mount, we saw, we heard it. We heard the voice. We are eyewitnesses to an incredible experience on the mount. That's what Peter's saying here. And the truth is, nobody else has had that experience. Just these three. And Peter says, you have not had that experience, but you have something better. Every Christian has something better than the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter's saying. And in 2 Peter 1, he says in verse 19, we have also, we, all of us, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, 
whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is a passage that is about the, the, the inspiration, the clarity of Scripture. This is about how the Scriptures were given. Specifically, at this point, Peter's writing, he's speaking of the Old Testament, and unbeknownst to him, he's writing about the whole of the Bible. Now, why does this matter? I want you to get this. What Peter says in 2 Peter 1 is he says, the Spirit of God moved men to write. They did not write by their own will, but by the will of the Spirit of God. And he says in these words to these believers that there's no experience that is more vital to the life of a Christian than the very words of God in Scripture. In fact, Peter says, what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration you have a more sure word than even our experience. You have in the Bible a more sure word from God than what we experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. And and so, Christian, you need to understand today that when you open God's word, you open something far more sure than an experience. An experience. Peter says, We have had the greatest experience, but when you have your Bible, you have something better. You have something better. Many will say, I will trust Jesus when I have this experience. Or I'll follow God when I have this experience. I'll become a Christian when I have this experience. But the the Apostle Peter, who was there on the mountain, says... You don't need an experience. You need God's Word. You need God's Word. It's a more sure word than what we experienced on the mount. Now, why does this matter? Because it is for this very reason that we are a Bible-centered people. We preach the Bible maybe to the point where you get tired of the way we preach the Bible, and that's fine. You're free to not enjoy it all the time, but we are totally free to preach nothing but the Bible. Be a Bible-centered people. All that we do, all that we believe is rooted in God's Word because it's a more sure Word. Now, it is fascinating in all this that in our more sure Word is the story of the transfiguration. And so we want to learn from it. I want to kind of land the plane on this moment in the life and ministry of Christ by taking you into verses 9 to 13. I want to break it down in two simple ways. I'm going to be honest with you. I was a, I'm a little bit worried about the message today because you, um, you, you were um, highly enjoying last week's message, and this week you're going to be very bored. Um. This is the meat of the word for the next few moments, so you're going to have to try hard to listen. All right? I'm not stomping and hooping and hollering today, but I might if Sam bothers me a little more. I want you to see first off in the text that we read, I want you to see the charge from Christ. The charge from Christ. 
Jesus in the inner circle there, you can see in verses 9 through 10, Jesus in the inner circle are coming down from the mountain. The experience is behind them. What they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration is behind them. And you'd think in this moment they'd be a little bit giddy, right? They'd be a little bit like, man, this is incredible talking about it. It's like when I, when I, when I went uh, to uh, the, uh, the Cubs game when they, the year they won the World Series, and I went to the National League Championship Series, and the Cubs had an incredible uh, uh, final portion of the game with home runs, grand slams, Wrigley Field's going crazy, and everybody leaves, and all they can do is talk about it. And you'd think that these guys would be so fired up. But the moment is actually very tense. It's very serious. In fact, I would say that Jesus is a, comes across a little bit, a little bit terse, a little bit direct. In fact, as the, the text tells us, that as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them that they should tell no man what, they, what things they had seen. Now, have you ever seen something incredible, witnessed something incredible, and you're like, I, I can't wait to tell my spouse. I, I mean, i got to tell someone. Jesus, I mean, in this moment, if I could say it like this, it's kind of a killjoy. These guys saw something unlike anything they'll see until the resurrection. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone until after I'm risen. Don't tell anyone. Tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. The Greek word there, charge, Jesus charged, it's, it's a command. Jesus commands them. He commands them to stay silent. Now, you might have noticed this if you've been paying attention in the Gospel of Mark. There is a command to silence several times in Mark's Gospel. There's one in Mark 5.43. There's one in Mark 7.36. There's one in Mark 8.30. The only time up to this point that something miraculous happened that Jesus told someone to go tell others is when he cast the demons out of the, the, the maniac of Gadara and he told them to go tell, go tell everybody what happened. There's, there's something about the command to silence in this passage. Now, the reason for it is actually going to be explained. And I, I want to, this is the meat that you're going to have to just be ready to chew on with me for a little while. It's in this moment that we get another glimpse into the, into Christ's primary purpose for his life and ministry. It's the very reason why they were commanded to silence because just as there is now, there was then a massive misunderstanding about who Jesus was and why he was there. As there's misunderstandings about Christ now, there was misunderstandings then. In fact, we saw that misunderstanding in chapter 8 when we saw the interaction between Jesus and Peter when Jesus told Peter and the other disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And the Son of Man is going to be rejected of the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. And when Jesus told them that, Peter rebuked him. Right? Peter rebuked Jesus. Why? Because there's a misunderstanding about why Jesus is there. There's a misunderstanding about who he is. He charged them to tell nobody what they had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration until the Son of Man were risen from the dead. The latter part of that statement, until the Son of Man were risen from the dead, is a stumbling block for the disciples of Christ. It's a stumbling block. They can't grasp that. 
Now the point of the command, I want you to get this, the point of the command is silence was because Jesus knew, hear me very carefully on this, that an unfinished gospel must be avoided. If they told everybody what happened, the problem would be an unfinished gospel. There would be the Son of Man without the cross or without the resurrection. So the very reason for Christ's birth, life, and ministry was His death and resurrection. The point of, his, of, of what, why Christ came was not healings, was not miracles, was not water walking, it was not raising the dead, opening the blind eyes, manifesting His glory on the mountain. That has a place within His ministry, but that was not the chief place. That was not the must. The must was the Son of God must suffer. So the central focus and truth of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And these guys spreading this news could spoil that. And after his death and resurrection, it was, a, it was obvious to his followers of why he came to earth. And so Jesus tells them to keep all this to themselves until after he rises from the dead. And the issue was, the issue here for them, the question is not that they questioned the resurrection. Let's track with me here for a moment. It's not that they question the resurrection. The disciples knew what the resurrection was because in Matthew eleven five they had seen people raised from the dead. In Matthew ten eight they had been a part of raising people from the dead. According to Matthew uh, ten eight, Matthew eleven five they had seen resurrection happen through the life and ministry of Jesus. The Old Testament taught that there would be a resurrection from the dead. The issue here is not the resurrection. The issue for the disciples is that Jesus must first be dead before he can be resurrected. In their minds, the Messiah can't die. In their minds, the Christ, the King, can't suffer and die. He's the one who's going to deliver them from suffering, not suffer, not die. That's why Peter rebukes Jesus in Mark 8.31. That rebuke from Peter was because they did not understand Jesus' mission. And even after the Mount of Transfiguration, they still don't understand the mission of Jesus fully. So much so that you saw in verse number, in verse number 10 that they questioned one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. This is not the first time they heard about it. But they're sitting there going, what does this mean? What is he talking about? Look what we saw him at the mountain. Why is he talking about being resurrected from the dead? It doesn't square with their understanding of Christ. And as Jesus and Moses and Elijah talked on the mountain, they talked about the crucifixion. They, they talked, uh, the Father called the disciples to hear. They want, he wanted uh, the, 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 the disciples to hear what Jesus said. You need to hear Jesus. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. He wanted, the Father said, men, you need to hear what the Son is saying. And yet they didn't. They still didn't. Therefore, the title of the message 
more misunderstanding. More misunderstanding. They can't imagine that the Christ, the Messiah, would die. The, the Messiah is to come and make things right, not to be subject to death and suffering. If Jesus is the king, then the kingdom is imminent. But how imminent is it if Jesus is going to die? These guys are unready, not ready to accept this. They're unwilling to accept it. Their desire was the manifestation of Christ's glory. Their desire was the established kingdom. Their desire was ruling and reigning with their king. But who's going to rule and reign with a dead guy? That misunderstanding explains the question and point of number two, which is my second aspect of the text, is the coming of Elijah. The coming of Elijah. And so within the context of all this, they're still coming down from Mount Hermon. They're still talking. They're still processing this. And so they asked him, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. This is part of the, the meat of this. So if I lost you, try to find your way back home for a minute. All right? The point of this and the reasons why the disciples are asking about Elijah, it's at least twofold. The fact that Elijah was present at the transfiguration, maybe they thought, there's Elijah. And before the kingdom, Elijah's going to come. And so we saw him on the mountain. And so maybe because they saw him on the mountain, they thought, this is how the kingdom is going to go. It's going to start. And now this guy's talking about dying. The other question in their minds had to be, well, if Jesus is going to die, and Jesus is the Christ, or if Jesus is going to die, maybe they're wondering, maybe he's not the Christ because we've not seen Elijah come yet. They're beginning to maybe process this out in their own, maybe there's a little seed of doubt and going, well, maybe everything that he's told us about himself is not true because the, the, the scribes tell us that Elijah is going to come before the Messiah, and if Jesus is going to die, maybe he's not the Messiah because we haven't seen Elijah yet. And so be, the, the seed of doubt starting to creep in. And so Jesus notes that they, have a, they asked a good question. And he, 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 he reminds them, as they're reminded, I should say, of Malachi 3, when you see this prophecy, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This was the, the prophecy that Malachi had given, that before the Messiah comes, the messenger would come. Malachi 4 notes this messenger as Elijah the prophet. In Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But the disciples note the scribes. And, and the reason they note the scribes without noting Malachi specifically is because the scribal tradition taken from Malachi at this time was that that. Elijah would come to prepare the people of God for the reception of salvation through repentance. That was the tradition of that day. And so Jesus affirms what these guys know and say to be true. In verse 12, he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught? Now, stay with me for a moment here. Let me try to bring some clarity to this. Actually, just to be fair, it's one of the hardest passages in Mark to understand. The hope of the disciples is correct that yes, Elijah will come first. 
but the way in which they understood Elijah's coming in ministry was not at all in line with what Christ is explaining here. Malachi in Malachi 4.6 had said that Elijah would be a spiritual restorer. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And so what Elijah is going to do is going to turn. He's going to turn. He's going to bring spiritual repentance in his ministry before the Messiah's return. But I don't want you to miss what Jesus says in verse 12. It's, the, it's what is often brushed over in this passage. He says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught? Jesus reminds them that, yes, it is written that, the, that Elias will come. It is also written that the Messiah is going to suffer many things, and you guys are struggling with that. So let me make sense of it. It's what Jesus says here. He says, first off, he's connecting himself, and they would, understood, would have understood this to the, to the 53rd passage in Isaiah, which, which I believe is in your, in your outline there. You, he would be pointing them to Psalm 22, Psalm 69. He would be pointing them to the suffering messianic passages of the Old Testament, there, where the Lord is treated with contempt, he's despised, he's rejected, he's bearing grief, he's oppressed, he's wounded, he's afflicted, he's bruised, stricken, smitten of God, all of this. This is the suffering Messiah, the Son of Man. This is Jesus. And Jesus said there, I wonder if you notice it in verse 12, that He, speaking of the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, that He must suffer many things. Must. It's the second time in Mark 8, Mark 9, that we've seen the must. Jesus must suffer. What's Jesus doing here? He's reminding them that they know it's reminding them that they know it's written about Elijah's coming before the Messiah. It's also written of the servant of God who suffers. Yet this is missed by the disciples. The suffering of the messenger, the one like Elijah, does not disqualify him to prepare the way. Just as the suffering of Jesus does not disqualify him as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus goes on to tell them what they might have missed otherwise. And he says in verse 13, giving total clarity here, I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as is written. So Jesus speaks to this here. Now this kind of ties a bow on all of this. They said, isn't Elijah supposed to come? Jesus says, you understand rightly. Elias has come. And who's he speaking of? Matthew 17, 12 says, but I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise also the Son of Man suffer, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer them of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. What's Jesus doing here? John is telling them, or Jesus is telling them that John is the Elijah sent by God because he fulfills the ministry of the renewal leading the people of repent to repentance and preparing the way for the Messiah. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 16, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is told what his ministry would be, where we see these words, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn. Malachi said he will turn the hearts. Luke chapter 1, he shall turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is, what is Jesus saying here? What is the scripture saying here? What does the landscape of the New Testament say? That John the Baptist has come in the spirit and power of the Elijah from Malachi chapter 4 and he's going to come and he's going to turn hearts and he has done that. He's turned hearts preparing them for the Messiah and John has suffered just like Jesus will suffer. That's the whole point here. They wanted to dismiss these possibilities because of suffering. And Jesus says, no, these fulfillments are what they are because of suffering. Because Jesus' exaltation as the King of kings and Lord of lords requires, it requires His suffering and death and resurrection. And so this disclosure here by Jesus leads us to an understanding of John the Baptist's mission as the Elijah, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way. There's also definitely a picture here of the second coming of Christ. When another will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, of which the whole transfiguration passage in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and then in 2 Peter 1, they all are speaking to the glorious second coming of Christ and the reality of the kingdom of God on earth. That's what this is all leading to. Now, I told you this is a heavy text, uh, not easy to wrestle through. But let me say it to you very simply so that even the child can understand. As they're coming down from this mountain, the disciples are stunned by what they see. Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody what you saw until after I am raised. The men begin to question, is Jesus really who he says he is? And so they ask about Elijah. Where is the Elijah? Jesus says, Elijah has come. And that was John the Baptist. He came and he prepared the way before me, the Messiah, in fulfillment of Malachi 3 and 4. And as John suffered, so will the Son of Man suffer. They did to him whatever they listed. Whatever they wanted to do, they did to him. And to the Son of Man, they will set him at naught. What is he saying? They will do unto me whatever they please. You can imagine these guys aren't really knowing what to do with this. So what do we do with it? Good question. Let me give you three quick conclusion points. Number one, we can find great encouragement from the disciples of Jesus. Let me explain this for you. When I read through the Bible, I don't know about you, when I get to a text like this, I feel like I have an unfair advantage over the disciples because I'm on the other side of the resurrection. I find myself frustrated with these guys. I feel like the dad in me starts to come out. And I want to say, how many times does he have to tell you? Why can't you guys listen? and just do what he says. And you know what I rem I'm reminded of? I'm just like them. <laughs> and so are you. 
I too have questions, doubts. I too occasionally can battle through unbelief, confusion. I too can be unsure of what to do with all of the scripture because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I I always just handle it super well. I too find myself frustrated with sin, with sadness, with sickness, with death. I too find myself wondering, when is Jesus going to make all this right? I too find myself just like the twelve. And so when I look at them and say, what is wrong with you guys? I have to look at myself and say, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. Now, obviously, the passage is fundamentally about Jesus. But for you and me, what's important for us to take encouragement from today is there are three people who are really, really close to Jesus who saw the transfiguration, who saw the resurrection, and they still struggled. Don't be too difficult on yourself. Don't be too difficult on yourself. Did you struggle this week? Did you have doubts? Did you find yourself kind of looking at God saying, what are you doing? Why, what is going on? What is, why am I going through this? Why can't you just make this right? And, and we find ourselves wrestling with all that it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. When those who through inspiration of Scripture gave us the Bible they struggled to be Bible-believing Christians. In fact, this is a thought that I want to share with you. Is that regarding these 12, specifically, let's say, these three, the disciples are only with Jesus because of Jesus. <laughs> you got, you got to, you've got to think through that one. The disciples are only with Jesus because of Jesus. They're only still there because Jesus is faithful to them. They're only still there because Jesus hasn't abandoned them. They are definitely not there because they believe everything Jesus is saying. And they are definitely not there because they are sold out followers of Jesus who are ready to go to, a, to the cross with Him. They're definitely not there because they're ready to die for Him. They're there because of Jesus. And in your Christian life, hear me very carefully, we will tend to think we're here because of ourselves. And I just tell you, soon to be 42 years of living on this earth and about 37 of those being a Christian, I will tell you this, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, I am definitely not here because of me. And I am definitely not still following Jesus because of me. The only reason I'm still following Jesus is because of Jesus. Because He won't let me go. I'd have given up on Him a long time ago. And so would you. But He's just been way too good. And way too kind. So when you fumble the ball this week, that's my Super Bowl pun for the day. When you fumble the ball this week and you think, oh, I'm a terrible Christian, jump in line. Jump in line with people who couldn't ever get it right. Secondly here, following Jesus to the cross means following Jesus in suffering. Following Jesus to the cross means following Jesus in suffering. 
what I did not say yet that's important for your understanding of this text is verse 11, 12, and 13 is fundamentally about the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the one who came to prepare for Christ. And hear me, and the suffering of all who come behind him. So following Jesus to the cross means following Jesus in suffering. Today's Christian and today's reader of the Bible has no place for that. But you have to consider the original audience to whom Mark was writing. And who was Mark first writing to? Mark is first writing this gospel to Gentile Christians who were being subjected to the savageries of Nero. They were falling under the hands and the iron fists of Nero's persecution. And so Mark's writing to suffering Christians around Rome, and he's reminding them that it is the suffering of Christ that brings him to glory, and it is the sufferings of, that Christians experience that help them to actually know Christ. In fact, Paul said in Philippians 3, he didn't speak of the sufferings of Christ and his own sufferings in a negative light. He called them the fellowship of his sufferings. There's a community, a koinona of suffering that Jesus invites Christians to join in. And it is the way in which we come to best know Christ. You don't know Christ only by reading his Bible. You don't know Christ only by coming to corporate worship. You don't know Christ just because you like what he says. You come to know Christ as you experience suffering with Jesus. And that's the cost of discipleship. Bonhoeffer said that. He said it, he said it under the, the threat of Nazi Germany. If you want to know discipleship, you must enter into the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. Once again, a, a place, a thing that we don't have much room for. Lastly, number three. This is, this is so elementary and so simple, but I got to say it. It is by the cross and resurrection of Jesus that his life and ministry makes sense. Coming down from the mountain. Now, you and I can read Mark 9 and we can be like, guys, don't you get it? This is the glory of Christ on display. And they're coming down from the mountain going, what was that? What did we just see? And here's the point of it all. You actually, you actually do a disservice to Jesus. You do a disservice to God. And at the end of the day, you do a due service to yourself if you try to understand Jesus first by his ministry. With Jesus, you actually have to start backwards and work your way back. You have to start at the end, if you will, and work your way to the beginning. Because it is only by the cross and it is only by his resurrection that anything Jesus said and anything Jesus did or anything done to Jesus makes any sense. I'm, I'm always encouraged by people who want to live like Jesus. Do you know that if all you try to do is live like Jesus, it will totally crush you 
Because to live like Jesus is to live in total perfection. But you know this. Jesus did not just come to be an example to you of how to live, of how to love, of how to give, of how to serve. Jesus came because he must suffer and die. And to take the cross out of Christ is to take the salvation out of the Savior. And the only way to understand what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration truly is to say, the man on the middle cross is the Son of God who gave himself for me. He died. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, the Son of God was raised. And when you work backwards, now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense. It's the difficulty, if you will, of studying and reading your Bible and you read through Mark 1 and you're trying to read, read, read. You're trying to understand, understand, understand. It only makes sense at the end of the story. Let me say one more thing about that and we'll start to close. Which me saying I'm starting to close means nothing, so don't get excited. It's not just the way in which you make sense of Christ. It's the way in which you make sense of God's story. Now hear me. When I say God's story, what I'm saying to you is I'm speaking of the the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The only way to make sense of the whole story is to look at the end. To look at the end. To look at the end when what happened on the transfiguration, Peter said in 2 Peter 1, it was a picture of his coming in power in his return. That Christ will return one day. And in his second coming, he will return. And in the great day of the Lord, he will judge for sin. He will make right. He will set up his kingdom. And he will rule and reign. It is only on that side of history that everything looking back makes sense. Hear me. Even the story of your life. The only way you will ever make sense of your life is actually not today or tomorrow. It will not be until Jesus comes back. It's the only way. Because all the wrongs of your life will be made right. And and all that has been difficult about this life will make sense. It will make sense. And so we anticipate the end of the story. And so when we look through Mark 9, we're reminded once again that Jesus must suffer. He must suffer. Hey, don't beat yourself up too much this week. Take it easy on yourself. And at the end of the day, if I was Jesus, I'd be coming down from that mountain. I'd be like, you guys drive me crazy. I'm throwing you off this mountain. But you know what you get from Jesus? You get from Jesus for all of our misunderstanding. He just continues to give more grace and more grace and more grace. Why? Why can Jesus give grace? Why can he give grace? 
because he's going to suffer and he's going to die for people like you and me who never fully understand. If you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, I could sit here and I could tell you all about the life and ministry of Jesus and at the end of the day, you'd probably be like, I don't know what, why, what's this about? It's actually all about the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth to die for sinners. And we are sinners. He came to die for us. You, me, to save us from our sins, to give us a relationship with God that we've lost, to restore us to our true humanity, to who we're truly meant to be. If you're here and you don't know Christ as Savior, at the end of the service, one of our pastors will be down front, one of our deacons will be down front. We'd love to take God's word and show you how you can know that you can be saved. Maybe you're, maybe you're t- today, you just need somebody to pray with you. Maybe you're going through a rough stretch. Maybe life's just been hard lately. Maybe you need some encouragement from God's word. The prayer and encouragement of a pastor or a deacon. My hope and my prayer is that you would join one of them. You join one of them at the front after. You receive the encouragement that you need. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.